Ahmed and Lina, welcome to the next GCC special about Kuwait and uh, interesting retail concept in Kuwait. Starring guest today is um, Ahmed, uh, helping us to understand the market and the retail business model in Kuwait. Welcome, Ahmed. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us a, uh, a bit about uh, what you're doing there? Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you very much, Lina, for having me. My name is Ahmed al -Ghan. I'm the head of e-commerce at uh, City Center Hypermarket. City Center is a chain of hypermarkets in the Middle East, focused mainly in Kuwait, but we do have stores in Qatar and in Iraq. What I do as the head of e-commerce is we launched our e-commerce division in 2019, just like all the other hypermarkets that were struggling with COVID. And what we're doing now is turning the e-commerce division from something that was an emergency situation into a sustainable business. And that's what I'm focused on right now. And can you tell us a bit more about the market structure? As I told you uh, uh, before, m many of our listeners, I would say 99% of our listeners, um, may have read about Kuwait, never have been there. So how many people, well, how big is the market? So how many people sure, you can serve sure. offline and online? So the total population in Kuwait is around 4.5 million people with around uh, 1.5 to 2 million people Kuwaiti and the rest are expats. So what's mm -hmm. interesting about this market is that the very high expat population means that there's a lot of turnover because they'll come for specific jobs. They'll stay for maybe three to six years and then they'll leave. So that's very interesting for businesses like us because you'd have a higher churn than other hypermarket businesses. We're mainly focused on serving the expat population. Sorry, the uh, Kuwaiti population. Of course, we're very happy to have any customers. What's happened in the market in Kuwait, and that's pretty interesting, is when it comes to e-commerce, Kuwait has been one of the leading countries in the Gulf. Some of the two largest tech companies that came out of the GCC are Alabat and Carriage. They both came out of Kuwait and their food delivery services. So Kuwait in the GCC, it's seen as more the entrepreneurial hub. We don't have one of the largest markets compared to the UAE or KSA, but we're seen as more entrepreneurial. And a lot of Kuwaiti businesses expand to the rest of the GCC. So something that might, that would help people understand the GCC is to think of it more as kind of like the European Union, where yes, they're separate countries, but due to trade agreements, companies operate in all of these countries to take advantage of their population. So even if Kuwait seems like a small market, a lot of companies use it as a test market when they come into the GCC and then expand outwards. So they test, they pilot, they reiterate, and then they expand. And the reason they like Kuwait specifically is because of a number of factors. First of all, we have 90% internet penetration and 163% mobile phone penetration. So pretty much everyone has a smartphone and access to the internet, which makes it a very captivating test market. On top of that, 56% of the population is under the age of 35. So you have a young, educated population with smartphones that want to test new things out. So that's what, make, that's what makes Kuwait unique in the DCC and why a lot of people like to use it as a test market. 
Yeah. So if if we um, if we just take this um, comparison with the European Union, and we are um, looking at smaller countries in the European Union, usually they have a hard time to develop their own digital infrastructure. Usually, most of the yeah entrepreneurial um, uh, businesses you see, like in Austria or in Portugal, they are often crashed by the bigger retailers, like uh, the Amazons, the Alibabas, and and the others, because they have this network effect. They have like a huge leverage so how important mm -hmm. are those international marketplace businesses in, in in the region and especially in kuwait so in kuwait they're honestly virtually non-existent amazon doesn't ship to kuwait we order it either from the uae or actually from europe and we ship it to uh, the middle east what's interesting about these electronic players is that businesses like rmx shipping companies have been set up to ship goods directly from europe and the us so I'd order from Amazon US, it would ship it to that shipping agent, and they would bring it to me. That's actually much cheaper sometimes than even the local players. So because of that, and the fact that these markets aren't as captivating for the international players, has led to some negligence. When international players do come, they go to Saudi Arabia or to the UAE. They tend to overlook Kuwait, Oman, Bahrain, Qatar, the smaller countries. So they are starting to come to the region, but they're mainly focused on Saudi Arabia and the UAE, not the smaller markets. Oh, okay, because I would have expected that, um, the, especially like the Chinese uh, uh, vendors, like the Alibabas and now Shein's, because um, there's like from a geographical perspective, it's, it's not so far away. They would rather first ship like into Kuwait, uh, Case A or other like um, uh, Middle East countries. Um, be because if you're like ordering from Amazon US, usually there's a product that's shipped from China to the US and shipping back to yeah. uh, to, yeah. uh, to, to the Gulf region. That seems to be very inefficient um, to me. So my, my like initial um, thought would have been, okay, most likely Chinese companies are already like starting in, in the region. But you're saying they're focusing on Dubai, Uh, and Riyadh, obviously, and from there yes. they might expand into other countries. That's for the American businesses. Chinese businesses have penetrated, but in different industries. For example, they're very active in the automotive industry, which isn't the case in Europe. So there are a lot of Chinese brands that are sold in Kuwait that are not sold in Europe. Um, other than that, in our hypermarket business, we do import a lot of goods. But when it comes to consumers choosing electronic products or garments, there is a sense of brand loyalty in the Middle East. So they prefer to stick with the brands they know, even if there are cheaper alternatives from China that are of similar quality. Hmm. Okay, got it. And then last one more question before Lina might uh, uh, might start. You you said um, there were two um, food delivery businesses started out of Kuwait. They yeah. are becoming um, some of the leading delivery businesses in, in the region. What does it mean um, for the logistics capabilities in, in the region? So it's like same hour, same day delivery. Is it, is it kind of a standard in, in the region already? Because this food delivery stuff is usually based around yeah. like a one, two hour delivery slot. Yeah. So what's also unique about the Middle East is that labor is cheap. So they bring expat labor. And unfortunately, this labor isn't promised as many benefits as national. So it's much cheaper than having, for example, a delivery person in Europe. So what's very common in Kuwait is uh, an expat on a motorbike delivering these goods. Now, in the past couple of years, due to safety concerns for these drivers, the Kuwaiti government has been tightening policies. For example, these motorbikes can't be driven on highways anymore. They have to drive on cars. But in general, due to the access to cheap labor and the fact that Kuwait isn't very big, 
leads to these businesses that can deliver in half an hour on the same day. Just to give you a sense, even though Kuwait, if you look at it on a map, isn't big enough to write the word Kuwait on, Kuwaitis only live in 10% of the land. Around 80% of the land in Kuwait is reserved for the Ministry of Defense and the oil sector for drilling. So Kuwait geographically is focused on a very small cluster, which enables the market to do these type of delivery services. Mm-hmm. Lina, you've, you've seen like many different like delivery-based business models as you're like the expert in e- e-commerce in the region. How would you rate like Kuwait versus other uh, countries in the region? Uh, so I would definitely agree with Ahmed because the population is very young and very driven and uh, definitely very well educated. Uh, they are a lot faster as a country to adopt a lot of like technology, right? So you can see where the driver is, you can track the driver and the high use of WhatsApp. Pretty much you can get in touch uh, with a driver within seconds. So what that enables is that taking the cheap labor and, uh, you know, it sparks a lot of entrepreneurs to start logistics companies, right? Because you can pretty much have few delivery guys on the bike using the WhatsApp and uh, we don't always need to integrate end-to-end on a technical side. So what that enables is that we constantly have new players coming up in the, in the market compared to the other, um, to the other GCC countries. Because in other GCC countries, it's very difficult, you know, in terms of the roads uh, between cities, is, is, it's, it's hard to reach each other. While in Kuwait, you pretty much can go from top to, to down, you know, within three to four hours. So um, I really do see small companies, entrepreneurial, and they all try to use technology to experiment with uh, uh, helping customers to get in touch with a driver or see where the driver is. Um, so it, it's definitely developing, and I, I, I wasn't my first time was in Kuwait was probably um, 2012, and since then every year if I go back, you know they're like very digitizing, and the whole economy is really like pushing for digital, uh, and because the population is young and willing to try, and it's quite easy to change from manual process to tech process to digital apps. So yeah, they're they're, they're advancing, you know, I would say by the minute rather than by the year. There's one very important thing about the Kuwaiti market to help understand why the users are so willing to try these new products and why startups happen in Kuwait. So a lot of people, when they think of Kuwait, they think of a lot of wealth. That's not really the case. The reason Kuwaitis spend is because they don't save as much money because they don't need to. Over 90% of Kuwaiti nationals work for the government. And when you work for the government, it's very hard for them to let you go. So you have stable income and very high job security. On top of that, a lot of essential goods are heavily subsidized, including free healthcare, free education. So Kuwaitis, that high job security, combined with the fact that their essentials are taken care of, mean that they have a lot to spend. They don't need to save money. Because of that, they're very forgiving when it comes to the margins that these new players need. So for example, these new delivery players, when they compete against hypermarkets in the US or supermarkets, They have to match the price because consumers in the U.S. will naturally compare them. In Kuwait, that's not the case. So there are a lot of these delivery players that deliver snacks, for example, that charge up to 30% more than we do. And people still buy from them because there isn't this this um, 
how to put it nicely, they don't compare prices as much. They're very willing to pay the premium. That oh. for startup is a great proposition. So that's also why startups like the dark. Kuwait is a Switzerland of uh, GCC because that like the, the, the example you just okay. gave it's, it's exactly the same that many like e-commerce businesses in Europe see when they, when they um, expand to to Swiss <laughs> they, they they see like people are paying more are willing to pay more 20 30 40% like margins are much much better infrastructure is much uh, uh, much better oh so interesting so yeah it reminds me uh, um, uh, at my time at the military service because like obviously when you're in military service healthcare is taken care of uh, you're getting food Uh -huh. uh, uh, you, have, <laughs> you have your room to sleep in so all the salary uh, you're, you're getting you can spend on consumption for whatever you want usually it's cars pretty much in the <laughs> it's <laughs> pretty much so and, and that's why yeah. people like their companies like to start in Kuwait the margins allow them to reach a point where they get the scale they need to expand to the other countries in the GCC so they start up they test in Kuwait they get the management team they need they reach not break even but closer to break even than they would in other countries. But there are important things in Kuwait that hinder the growth of startups. In every market, there are the pros and there are the cons. The pros in Kuwait is the captive audience that's willing to spend. The cons are two main things. The first one is the cost of warehousing. Land in Kuwait is very expensive because A, we're using a very small portion of the land, but B, there are zoning restrictions in Kuwait, which make it which make, for example, warehousing very hard to come across because you can't just store goods in any location. Because of that, rents are very high for warehousing uh, facilities, which hinders the growth of a lot of companies because if you're selling goods, for example, if you're not a food delivery, what if you're an electronics retailer? That very high cost of warehousing hinders their growth. The second element that hinders the growth of startups in Kuwait is the government bureaucracy. Now, traditionally, governments in the Middle East aren't geared towards startups. They're very rigid in their laws. The UAE is a different example, and Saudi is becoming a, a new rising star when it comes to changing government regulations to be more startup-friendly. Unfortunately, Kuwait were optimistic, but currently, the restrictions in place hinder growths of startups because you need a government liaison. There's a lot of paperwork that has to be filed in person. The government tends to be slow. And when you're moving fast, that really gets in your way. So those, I say, are the two things holding startups back from growing and reaching their full potential in Kuwait. Yeah, but still interesting. But Lina, you've you've advising like many many businesses in in, in the area. And when I listen to Ahmed, this kind of Swiss <laughs> metaphor uh, really sticks um, uh, really sticks for me. Like same with the regulations and uh, and with uh, with uh, with uh, with scaling uh, uh, limits. Would you advise a startup to start in Kuwait if it still has a chance to choose? Um. I think it's, as Ahmed definitely said it, you know, it's a, it's a brilliant market to test. Um, you know, maybe it's not the best market to scale whenever your venture VC mm. guys or PE guys are pushing you for double, triple the growth year over year. Um, that's very hard to achieve because the population is very small. So even most of the time in the first year, you either reach them or, or they already tried your business, you know, tried to shop with you and then... They, they don't want to, or they chose the competitor, or they went through cross-border, you know, as, as, as Ahmed mentioned earlier. So, uh, but it's very great to test because it has expats plus locals, right? So in a very small, so Kuwait city itself, 
you know, like areas have the, you know, it's a small geographical area, but you can touch every single nationality that you want to test your business model with in, um, in the KSA. This is pretty much impossible to test like that. And in the UAE, um, again, you know, because it has uh, like Dubai is very different than Abu Dhabi than other Emirates. So again, it's, it's, it's a lot harder to test. So what um, it really depends on the startup model. Uh, that's what I think Ahmed mentioned or you know, any tech driven businesses um, that provides either a service or something that touches the end consumer starts in Kuwait. But I don't see biotech or, you know, or like uh, something in health tech starting in Kuwait because it's more consumer driven, either brands, either tech startups that have, a, you know, like touches end consumer like yourself, like like us, right, on this call. Um, so, yeah, so it depends what type of startup you're talking about uh, because other, other GCC countries have a lot of subsidiaries for like biotech and, 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 and all the metaverses and everything that, you know, is maybe 10 years from today, while Kuwait is focusing on here and now, you come into the market, we have the consumer, consumer is young, ready to spend, your tech has to work because they are very, they're not forgiving you, right? They're very vocal, they're very, you know, educated. So they're comparing your service to the, the Western world services, most likely, and predominantly probably US and, and UK because uh, they're all educated in the, the universities over there. So there is no room for, I would say, mistakes because it's small market. So you have to be really strong-minded and driven and, and ready for the market if you're going to go there. Okay, yeah. So I I still stick with the idea of uh, naming this podcast um, episode why Kuwait is the Switzerland of GCC. So let, let me see if you can, can convince me otherwise. But uh, let, let's let's focus the second half of the podcast maybe on your on your business. That's why we've <laughs> that's why we are uh, recording. Can you tell us a bit more about your uh, your business model, which is like a hypermarket? But what kind yeah. of hypermarket is it? Is it mainly a wholesale model? Do you own brands? Do you run a marketplace on top of it because you're you're running the e-commerce uh, part? Sure. So can you tell us a bit more? Sure, I'll start with the overall business and then within our division because then it, come, it becomes easier to understand. Mm -hmm. The overall division is a hypermarket. A lot of Europeans maybe haven't heard of that. It's pretty much a supermarket that also sells large appliances and garments, kind of like Walmart. The business is pretty much traditional. You rent out the shelf space, we have our own private label products, and that's how the system works. And we also rent out space to adjacent stores. Mm -hmm. Now, as I mentioned in 2019, COVID shut everything down. Before that, grocery e-commerce was pretty much non-existent in Kuwait. It was available for snacks, for soft drinks, but when it comes to essential, it wasn't available. So then in 2019, we had to quickly bootstrap something new. And that's how the e-commerce division emerged. So us as e-commerce, what differentiates our business in terms of an existing player going into e-commerce as opposed to a pure play e-commerce is that we pick directly from our store. That gives us a big advantage because clearly we have the cost advantage. Uh, we have less out of stock issues because you're picking from an actual store, not from a warehouse. So that's basically how our business emerged. We pick directly from our stores and our stores are located across the country. So we pretty much can touch all the consumers and we usually deliver same day unless the slots are booked. Just to understand how e-commerce has emerged in the mid Middle East. And I believe you can draw this comparison to every country, maybe except the UAE, is that there are different segments within grocery. 
In the US, when you say grocery e-commerce, it's just one type of e-commerce. But in the GCCs, it's pretty much segmented. And by the way, for the viewers who don't know what the GCC means, the GCC is pretty much our trade union, the Gulf Cooperation Council, which includes Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Bahrain, Qatar, and the UAE. So how e-commerce grocery works for us is that there are different segments. The segment we operate in is the big basket, all your needs segment. You come to us to buy everything you need for your house, your fresh chicken, your produce, your milk. And what you're looking for there is reliability, low out of stock and the best pricing possible. Given our scale, we can provide these prices because e-commerce penetration and grocery is still very nascent in the region. Estimates aren't very clear, but it's between 0.5% to 2% at most. So that's where we operate, the big basket. Then there for are the smaller players. Or like for grocery or for all um, No, no, for grocery. I can go okay. into other segments a bit later, but for grocery, mm -hmm. that's where it is because people like to shop. They like to touch their produce. It's still a very old market that way. Now, if we look, if we go back to looking at grocery and the GCC, there's the segment I mentioned where it's the big basket, but then there's the other segment, which is the snack segment. The snack segment delivers to you within 30 minutes. They have imported products are very important for the user, but they charge extremely high margin. Sometimes their discounted product will be 50% more expensive than our regular product. So you pay a very high convenience fee, but their basket size would be between five to $20 at most. Whereas if when you go to the big players, the basket size starts at around $30, $35 at minimum and can go up to $350, $400. Because the homes here in Kuwait are pretty big. There are a lot of family members. Sometimes there are um, servants or helpers that live in the house, which makes the basket sizes very big. So that's also what's unique to grocery to us. In the US, if you'd hear $400 basket size, that mm -hmm. would be unheard of. Whereas yeah, for us, kind of, it's, it's not crazy. It's it's like a furniture business. That's where you see like yeah. three or 400, but not a grocery uh, business. That's for us. It's, uh, it's normal. That's crazy. And one, one question about like your, your scale and your size. So the hypermarket chain you're running even before Corona, what was the overall like grocery share in the Kuwait region? So how, how important is your business for the region? So in terms of the overall market, there aren't statistics that are published, but we're the second player in Kuwait in terms of hypermarket. And we're the number one local chain here. Okay. In terms of yeah. revenue. Yeah, maybe let's switch a bit to the e-commerce side. So you said, you know, like you've been operating a very successful brick and mortar business. And, uh, you know, in 2019, we kind of had to shake everything up, you know, and kind of start a completely uh, fresh, a fresh chapter yeah. of the e-commerce. I assume that e-commerce, you know, everyone in the company was familiar with it before but they didn't click go before COVID because of the high costs, you know, the, the potentially new way of working. So maybe you can tell the listeners a bit more about how did you go through the change? Uh, how did you convince the management and maybe what were the key challenges? Because uh, by the time 2019 technology kind of existed, we had loads of Western examples, how e-commerce should be done. But uh, I'm sure the listeners would like to learn more about challenges in Kuwait, the challenges convincing the brick and mortar management team to go online and invest and invest heavily. So I actually came in 2020. Luckily, the decision had already been made by the time I came in. 
But it's an interesting dilemma when you try to convince a retailer that's been offline for over almost 20 years to start to really dedicate resources to online. Because what's happening is every business says it's online, but they do it to tick a box. They'll just dedicate two to three employees and they'll just try to see how it goes. To genuinely convince them to put dollars and managers behind this is where the hard part comes in, specifically for hypermarket. The culture of a hypermarket couldn't be any more different than a tech startup. With hypermarkets, they're very focused on controlling costs. If you don't do that, you can't succeed in this kind of a business. Because we're not like garment retailers where you make 25% margin. The margins are much thinner. And so that requires financial discipline, which is the polar opposite of a startup. So for example, when you go to a board and your budget projects losses for the entire year, as a base case scenario, that raises red flags. In a company where the worst, absolute worst scenario is maybe a 5% margin. So convincing them to change their mindset took a lot of time. But what we did is we convinced them that there are non-financial gains to be had with an e-commerce division. Of course, we told them in 10 years, e-commerce is going to be the next thing, but they're focused on the here and now. And what we convinced them is we can provide you something you can't have, data. So for example, we know as soon as the product is out of stock, when, for example, we have fresh chicken, as soon as it's out of stock, we, re we receive five notifications per customer. Whereas in the offline division, the customer just looks on the shelf and continues and turns away. And if that keeps happening, they go to another hypermarket. So what we pitch this is as a data acquisition service. So we tell you when you're out of stock, we can tell you what products people like. We can introduce products that you might not want to introduce across your entire chain. We can be like a pilot program. And that's happened with a number of imported products. So that's how we pitched it to them. And thankfully, that's how it's emerged. And that's how they dedicated the resources we need to it. Well, congratulations, you know, because I, I, I know that you guys are doing really well. And, you know, I think you are setting the example in Kuwait for sure for how the grocery business should be done uh, well at scale. So maybe you can uh, tell us a bit more of the challenges, you know, on the substitution and the picking, you know, cause, okay. and the fresh, fresh produce, because most of our listeners, especially from the grocery space, would be facing the same issues globally. So maybe how are you dealing with them or do you see the same challenges as global players do? I think definitely we all share the same challenges. When you're working in a hypermarket, you have 30 to 60,000 SKU. Naturally, given that very broad range, that leads to a number of problems. So the problems include, one, how do you merchandise the products? How do you let the customer know you have 60,000 products? It's very hard. And how you merchandise, how you test that is a problem I think we all share within this industry. And the very high count leads to out of stock. No matter how hard you try, naturally in this business, you will leave, you will unfortunately have some sort of an out of stock issue because you're selling tens of thousands of SKUs as opposed to a luxury retailer who maybe has 40 SKUs at most. So that's what leads to the substitution problem we have. You can't just tell the customer, I'm sorry, we don't have the product. Here's the rest of your basket type because you might be missing an essential item like the chicken, which is the center of the entire basket. So many players have come up with different substitution techniques. Unfortunately, many of them were too manual to scale. For example, how it started was you would call the customer and say, I'm sorry, this specific product isn't available, but how about these alternatives? The problem with that is that it's too manual to scale. 
be the customer service agent wouldn't be an expert in all of your product naturally. So the suggestions wouldn't be of a very high quality. What have emerged are different solutions that use AI, use algorithms to see what are similar products and how that can be substituted. And that's what we've enacted. The issue we face there is charging them for a second time. So based on your company's regulation, it can be very difficult to charge a customer even more due to out of stock because consumer protection agencies might see it as a way for you to go around promotions, for example, if your promotion item is out of stock or a customer can complain saying, I was promised this item, but you didn't deliver. So with every solution, unfortunately, you find another problem, but hopefully it's less of a problem than the one you faced before. Can, can we, can we stick a bit um, on the, on your delivery model and picking model? Because um, you stated initially that you think it's an advantage to pick from store and then deliver uh, deliver to the cust customer because a you have the store coverage already uh, you have the stock and you have huge assortment so it's you don't need to build like an expensive warehouse yeah, yeah. the models we are seeing in the Europe, uh, in, in europe and in the us um, that are that are placing their bet on a central warehouse usually outperform the pick from store model over time because um, you have a much much better control over the assortment because maybe a customer is ordering a special kind of um, chicken yeah <laughs> uh, which you, which you still have in in stock uh, on your website but it was taken by another customer in the store and therefore it's kind of a, this kind of um, availability conflict this, invent this inventory data is, is, is never 100 and what uh, what the businesses faced in the european market was that the expectations on e-commerce from a customer perspective are so high they don't accept wrong picks or they don't accept the call here's a substitute Uh, uh, product they they do want to have what's on the website what what's available which usually favors a more centralized approach on um, um, on commerce so I do understand your view but over time what we have seen in other markets is that this central warehouse approach wins somehow so do do you have a do you have a, a view on that is it different in, in in your setup it's it's different for two reasons one is the cost of warehousing which I already mentioned The second one is the fact that it's still a very nascent industry. Once you reach the scale where you can dedicate a full warehouse, I completely agree. That's the way to go. Until then, especially for someone who already has retail stores, it's much more cost effective to start picking from stores because then you get a sense of what products do customers want. Where are my customers? And that helps inform where you should put your warehouse. So our model is a bit of a hybrid. I oversimplified it by saying we pick directly from stores. We have a dark store within the store dedicated solely for online, for the essential products that we know customers buy in volume, the milk, the chicken, eggs. And then for the other items, we pick them from the store itself. So we'd have maybe 500 items in our own dark store. And then for the remaining um, 40,000 items, 50,000 items, we pick it from the store itself. That gives us reliability and variety. But in the future, I completely agree within the next maybe 10 years, further than at least maybe as soon as five years, warehousing can be the way to go. And when it's picked and packed, you have your own delivery fleet or do you rely on an external logistics provider? Both. So we started off purely relying on an outsourced logistics provider just because we wanted to focus on the operations itself, on the picking, on the substitution, on the quality control. 
But of course, that comes with issues. It's a trade-off just like any decision. The good thing was we didn't have to worry about the drivers. The bad thing was we couldn't control quality. We found that essentially the driver is your touch point with the customer. If they don't call customer service, they are a representation of your customer, of your company. That's what led us to shifting towards our own fleet, which compromises half of the um, drivers we have in our fleet. And also there was a complicating factor where when we first started, the government wasn't issuing visas due to COVID. So we couldn't bring in our own drivers and we had to rely on outsourced drivers. Mm, okay. Yeah, just, just to add, you know, maybe for listeners, what Ahmed said, one unique thing, you know, talking about dark store versus European model is that uh, these guys, you know, their hypermarkets are huge. So they have everything uh, pretty much, you know, on the shop floor. Uh, all the 50,000 SKUs that Ahmed is talking about most likely will be like accessible for all the store consumers also. So in Europe, you know, like we have a concept of these mini stores and and like a smaller concepts, like a supermarket or like a small small market in a local community. Here, um, because of country size, their their hypermarkets are very strategically located across the country, and each hypermarket pretty much probably has ninety percent of assortment uh, for 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 the populations that needs uh, that they that they hold. So when they, we are thinking of dark store versus um, versus uh, fulfillment from store, uh, if European entities would think assortment choice, we are thinking, you know, like the experience in stores, we don't want to scale it uh, because that in, impacts the, the experience in store, right? For the consumers, if, if we have 100 pickers running around the, around the store. So even to move to the dark store within the hypermarket premises, was more in in order to improve the overall experience uh, for the offline consumers, not just by extending the assortment. You know, the assortment was kind of never an issue for us in the first place. It was more, can we have, uh, you know, faster fulfillment, you know, and not interrupt the customer journeys in stores. Lina brings up a very good point about these smaller stores that are within the neighborhoods in Europe. That's actually what led to our hypermarkets. So in Kuwait, once they saw those smaller neighborhood stores, they liked the idea. So the Kuwaiti government heavily subsidized putting these small, I wouldn't call them a supermarket. It, they'd be a little bit bigger than convenience stores within each neighborhood. Mm. And these yeah. are heavily subsidized. So customers yeah. can get very cheap goods from these conveniently located stores. The problem is if you don't provide that very big selection as a hypermarket, people won't come to you because they'll just say, I have a locally subsidized store right next to me. To convince them to come and drive to you, you have to provide that selection. That's what led to the culture around hypermarkets in Kuwait, where users think if I'm shopping at a hypermarket, I need the selection. That's why we have to provide them the thousands of tens of thousands of SKUs, because that's what they expect from a hypermarket because these stores are literally a one minute drive away from their homes. So even with e-commerce, even with the convenience of delivery, they say, if you don't provide me with selection, I can just drive there myself. It's literally a one minute drive. So the value proposition has to provide for that large selection for you to succeed in Kuwait. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, got it. But um, you said it all started with um, COVID, obviously, because there was no alternative yeah. for the customers to, to, to get, their, get their stuff. They still like to buy offline in a brick and mortar environment. Yeah. But I, I, I would expect there are still customers that, that um, value the convenience part uh, over the going to the store uh, part mm -hmm. and picking stuff uh, yourself. So uh, can you tell us a bit more about the customer behavior? Are there like special e-commerce customers that maybe even order more compared to the time when they went to the store because it's so convenient to, you know, like a $400 grocery order? That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. That's like, a, that's like yeah. a, the, the full trunk of stuff so even even in kuwait so and i assume that's easier yeah. and more convenient to get delivered than uh, picking it up your up yourself so do, do you see this kind of difference do you see scaling potential already with like pure play uh customers that only order online yes on a very high level the main difference between our offline and our online consumer is that the basket size with our online consumer are multiples of what it is for our offline consumer literally double what our offline consumer orders. Also, they're less focused on promo items. So in Kuwait, how hypermarkets work is they have a flyer once a month that has heavily discounted items. If you look at those items as a percent of the total basket, it's much higher for the offline customer than the online. So the online customer is more profitable in terms of the basket itself, but also they have much larger basket sizes. And do, are you already experimenting with new business models in the um, in the online grocery services? What we see, for example, in some European businesses, um, the Rolling Rolex Group Knusper is doing it. Um, you can uh, you can order by recipe. You can say, okay, I want to do this chicken masala, whatever, twenty people, uh, mm -hmm. and then the recipe machine uh, spits out, okay, you need like this thirty items. This is a quantity. And this is automatically filled in the um, uh, in your basket. Are are you playing around with stuff like this? Yes, actually, since a year now, we've had the recipe feature where it shows you recipes on the website and you can add to your cart. But also, let's say you're searching for chicken and there's a drop-down menu with different choices of chicken. Within that drop-down menu, they'll show you a recipe just to give you an idea of what other things you should order. So it's, oh, you're looking for chicken. Here's how you can cook this. Moroccan chicken dish while it's showing you the other chicken uh, selections. So we're definitely been experimenting with that. But also our experimentation has gone beyond just features on the website. And how can we target specific customers? For example, B2B customers. Their needs are very different from the needs of our online customers. And what's interesting is that we had a number of B2B customers come in online as normal customers because of the large basket sizes they ordered. So for example, Salon would come to our website and order a very large amount of shampoos, conditioners, snacks, water, coffee, and same for a couple of offices. And that's what led to our B2B division, which we're expanding right now. And their needs differ from the regular user. They want credit terms. They want delivery at a specific day, not necessarily a specific time. So we, do, we are experimenting with new things, but what we found is it has to go beyond your website and you have to extend it into the different type of customers and the credit terms and whatever they need. I would really say that uh, for the for the listeners, you know, that want to learn and want to find out in general, like grocery of the GCC, Kuwait City Centers definitely has one of the leading apps, you know, in terms of the functionality 
how easy it is to shop and just that that like the way they use recommendations and the way the the products are uh, arranged in the market like i honestly would say no uh, we are not far from anywhere like insta shop insta cards or of of the us market or walmart's app you know it's honestly honestly state of the art technology and um, they they do what's what's for me you know like it's is is really great to see that they are not afraid of technology even though the labor is cheap uh the kuwait center team constantly is looking how to embrace different technology solutions to to speed it up to to start offering faster and uh, these guys are probably the only ones in kuwait that can actually promise to our delivery and deliver within the same window that they promised and it's all because of the strong help of not just the front end as ahmed mentioned but all the functionalities that they have in the back end on the, on the tech side are you are you focusing only on certain areas in in kuwait you said it's like just 20% of the land mass it's like where where people live but do you deliver like in all 20% of the land mass or is it only around your hypermarkets almost so we if you look at that land mass which is actually only 15% we deliver to 80% of that 15% because there are those farther areas where it it just doesn't make sense to deliver to you might get one order and it takes three times as long to get it there so we're opening up new areas as we expand our fleet but so far we cover almost all of, of that 15% mm. okay and, and then let let's move into a very important topic and i think lena um i'm also is waiting for those questions so i guess because it's like a very young digital industry still there must be a huge um uh, fight for talents actually so because like in in europe or in, in the us you have like big clusters where you can source like developers or uh, or marketing experts and but but i guess when you started there there wasn't any experienced entrepreneur people that, that figured grocery businesses online out or, already so how do you solve this problem so that's definitely a problem when facing quite not just with grocery e-commerce but with everything so just to take a step back, compared to Dubai, Kuwait isn't seen as the place that expats usually want to live. The very highly educated expats. They want to pretty much live the life they live in Europe or in the US in the Middle East. And Dubai was the most friendly when it comes to that. Because, for example, drinking is allowed in Dubai, but it's not allowed in Kuwait or in Riyadh. So it's very hard to attract talent. Even if you find foreign talent, you usually have to pay a lot to convince them to come to Kuwait even though the standard of living in Kuwait is much cheaper than it is in Dubai. Now, what you usually have to do is it's very hard to find someone with the experience you need. You usually have to look to someone who has e-commerce experience in electronics or in garment, other more established industries in Kuwait, and then try to see if they'd work in your industry. But this is the case with all uh, hypermarkets in Kuwait. There I'm pretty much 90% of the heads of e-commerce and hypermarkets in Kuwait were the ex-head of IT before COVID. That's usually what happened. The head of IT became the head of e-commerce. It's very hard to find the talent you need here. But but do you see now some um, yeah so, some network effects because you need obviously some businesses to start this kind of motion. Then more people are getting are getting educated in online marketing and e-commerce and product management. And then some startups emerge, as you said, the online grocery delivery startups that emerged from from Kuwait. Do you do you see this industry cluster effect already? We do, especially with the startups, because un unfortunately a lot of them went bankrupt. So you have a lot of talent 
that's very good at launching a grocery business that unfortunately, due to the circumstances out of their hand, were laid off. But what's important is the type of talent and their experience. You can find a lot of people with experience launching grocery businesses or e-commerce businesses. But what we're all looking for right now are executives that can help grow. It's a completely different skill set. The launching skill set is a more scrappy founder type of individual, more entrepreneurial. But then when you look to the growth phase, that's a different uh, context. It's more um, financially um, scrutinizing the operation, hiring. So it's a very different skill set than the launching. And that's why we're all facing this issue of finding talent, because the industry as a whole hasn't gone into the growth phase yet. So no one has the employees or the experience they need to get there. And what about the uh, consumer? You know, so um, even though it is young population, I'm sure you know it's still you know it's it's very competitive market a space. And uh, maybe you can tell us how do you acquire customers currently, and how difficult it is to retain them, uh, sort of from the marketing standpoint or from the merchandising. You know, in terms of the offering we give them online. So the customers are definitely spoiled. Uh, to the point where at one point we were offering coupons for around $8 and no one was redeeming them because everyone's offering that same coupon. So they're definitely spoiled. What we found is the best way to gain customers is to focus on what you do best as opposed to trying to do everything. So we know we're the big basket player. We focus on attracting those consumers as opposed to trying to deliver snacks as well through motorbikes like the smaller players. So the way we've attracted these bigger players are doing what we do best, selection and pricing. So for example, we have this new initiative where once a week we heavily discount a product that we know everyone wants, like milk or chicken. That definitely brings in a lot of consumers and it's something that other smaller players can't do. So what's pretty much happened is the market's been segmented. The smaller players that deliver snacks and then the bigger players that look for the big basket. And we, as the bigger players, compete against each other through variety, pricing, and convenience. So that's pretty much how we've looked to gain the customers, providing great service, providing unbeatable discount, and making sure we can deliver as soon as possible. Usually usually in countries where you have like strong marketplace presence, the um, go-to-market strategy for brands or younger startups is to use the marketplace to get access to the customers. You said yeah. there's no, essentially no marketplaces active in Kuwait. So is it you? Are you the go-to person when I want to sell, I don't know, the Alex Graph uh, cups or the Alex Graph uh, um, electronic whatever furniture which I want to sell to the Ku Kuwaitis? Kuwaitis in the region, uh, would, you, would you agree? So it, it actually depends. Kuwait is much more segmented. We don't have an Amazon. So we don't have the one player that will sell you literally everything you want. We have a dominant electronics player. We have a dominant furniture player. We have a hypermarket player. And you go to whoever you need to go to. And we do have a lot of consumers that come to us with a new product. And that's where we test them in the e-commerce division because the basket sizes are higher and they're willing to pay more. So we do list products through that are brought to us by foreign vendors, but it's usually a fee structure where we would take between, depending on the product, 15 to 25% as a fee for delivering, listing, and handling the payments. So they do come to us, but not for everything. 
you're not taking the inventory risk. You say, okay, please, whatever product no. you want to sell, it's it's okay. We can we can list it, but you 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 just pay a kind of a marketplace premium on top because we are yeah. handling, we are giving you the access, renting the access to the customer, right? So it's a consignment model. Yes, we do have the inventory with us, but it's on consignment. If it doesn't sell, it returns back to the vendor. Hmm. And if it's successful, we will test an offline, right? So it's a, yeah. it's a very, it's a great, you know, like if, a, you know, how sometimes you have brands that really believe in the product. So we will give an opportunity, right? If we all believe in it. But uh, because, you know, as Michael mentioned, the data is very like critical for city center. They have all the data from the traffic to actually page views to everything that customer got exposed to, to their brand. And then also if they return the product, if they complain to the product, so for the offline um, department on the, on the buying side, you know, it's like we have real data to, sh to showcase should we list the product where the shelf shelf like space is limited, right? So it's a, okay. it's a, it's a, it's a great way um, to test. Mm -hmm. I, I will hand over to Lina for asking the final questions uh, uh, here. It's sure. Just, I had a lot. Sure. I, I took a lot of speaking and questioning time. No, it's okay. So uh, I think, you know, um, Ahmed, maybe it would be interesting for the audience to understand uh, what's next for the city center in terms of like, what's your vision? How are you seeing this e-commerce evolving? Are you looking to maybe launching the marketplace, right? So we heard that, there is no Amazon. While why City Center cannot become the the next Amazon of of Kuwait? Are you thinking of all of that? And uh, what's your vision for the future for City Center's e-commerce? So to start off with the Amazon question, before Amazon announced its entry into the UAE and the KSA, a number of players were thinking about becoming the Amazon. And to admit, we were one of them. But then, as soon as you see Amazon right next to you, that just deters any investment into becoming the Amazon because you know, as soon as you prove the market, they're just gonna come in. So a lot of our electronic retailers are very scared of that, especially since you can ship from the UAE to Kuwait. So Amazon is technically here. It's just not on the ground here. In terms of what we wanna do in the future, currently, as I mentioned, we pick from stores. So phase one for us is expanding to more of our stores. Phase two would be using that data to create the centralized um, warehousing, the dark store to deliver from there. And then once that happens, the next phase after that would be the express delivery, where we'd have one option for the very large basket sizer, where you can get same day delivery within two hours, but then the smaller basket size, which we could deliver within half an hour. We think that's a very big market. And it's unfortunate that people are paying 30% premium uh, to get that it's convenient. In terms of what I see for the market as a whole, there's definitely going to be a lot more consolidation moving forward. COVID was a gold, gold rush. And so a lot of people came, started their business, and now they've reached the phase, as Lena mentioned, where they have to expand to the rest of the Middle East, because that's the next gateway for VC funding. Once you prove that you can be a multi-country business in the GCC, that's when you start to see the very high valuation. And unfortunately, a lot of them are very stressed because the original model in Kuwait is I'll just throw money at the customer, which is fine when you have a limited customer base. But then once you enter Saudi Arabia, the UAE, with millions of tens of millions of customers, or sorry, tens of millions in Saudi Arabia, up to 10 million in the UAE, with many other companies also throwing money at them, that's when you start to see the businesses die off. 
So in the future, that's what I think is going to happen. One to two snack players are going to emerge, and then the hypermarkets are going to take their big basket size. So just the final thought that on that, as you're saying, it's going to be a consolidation. So that also presents opportunities for one side and then, and you know, risks for others. So what would you say that, what would you suggest to the brand that does want to enter into Kuwait market and potentially FMCG brand or, or fast moving goods or consumables? That's something that city center would list, you know, what do you think should they have unlimited marketing budget? Do they need to put the person on the ground? Should they work with you as a retailer directly or go via distributor? What advice would you give to maybe some famous brands that are currently doing really well in the US on Amazon, for example? Mm -hmm. The number one thing is due to the nature of the market, you need to have a local player. There are laws that restrict foreign companies coming in without a local player. That was just a way to protect local industry. But also a lot of the government bureaucracy requires someone on the ground that knows how to navigate it. A lot of the times permits are very hard to get. You need someone on the ground filing these papers, him or herself. And unfortunately, as with every emerging economy, the rules and regulations aren't as they're actually stated. So for example, there are always loopholes to finding for a specific permit, not illegal, just things that people in the market know how to do. So my number one recommendation would definitely to be to enter with a partner, regardless of whether it's a distributor or a retailer. A lot of the brands that tried to enter themselves have failed. It just wasn't possible. They didn't understand the market. They didn't have anyone on the ground. That's why all the biggest players have their own local player. Now, the question of whether you want to enter through a retailer or a distributor is depending on what, how much you're willing to dedicate to the market. So we actually operate as a distributor and as a retailer. So I'm not biased towards one end. The benefit for the retailer is that you get very quick exposure and you don't need to dedicate as much to marketing. We dedicate, we have specific spaces for them, just like we have with our agreement with uh, Waitrose, the British retailer. So in every city center, there's a mini Waitrose and we sell all their product. That was great for them because from the get-go, you have very inst you have instant market penetration. We market your goods for you, we give you preferred shelf space. But that does limit your growth because you are only in one hypermarket. The distributor model works well for goods that you want, you're willing to invest money in, you're very patient, but in the end, it could be bigger rewards. But you have to be differentiated to be in the distributor model. If your product isn't as differentiated as the established player, it's going to be very hard, no matter how much marketing you throw at it, to really get a foothold. I think great advice, Alex. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I'm not 100% agreeing on the statement that there, that you shouldn't uh, mimic Amazon or Alibaba in your region because um, if we look at like the Kuwait examples in Europe, you have the Netherlands with Bull.com, which is very successful in uh, in in fighting against Amazon and Allegro in Poland. Uh, no chance for Amazon actually to gain uh, to gain market share. Plus, you have um, what you can do and what, what Dubai is, um, or what, what, for example, um, KSA is doing. From a, from a legal perspective, you can restrict Amazon on doing all the tactics uh, they are doing in other countries. You can, can, you can forbid running their business um, because still the business model itself, the marketplace business is very strong. And um, even without those regulations and restrictions, um, they have a hard time to beat Allegro in Poland, for example, which is way bigger and they just 
started like 10 years um, before. But, but that's maybe something for uh, after the recording. So I would have some ideas uh, um, sure. how, how to build a, a strategy uh, there. But I'm, yeah. I'm, so I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. So I, I love the business and I love how you see it and how, and, and how, and how you scale it. Uh, but at the, in, the, in the long run, uh, um, I see also the full marketplace business model also uh, be part of, 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 of your of your business for, for sure. But definitely next time I, I'm going to visit Kuwait <laughs> when I'm in the region. Sure, <laughs> more than happy to host whenever you're here. Thank you, Lina. Thank you, Ahmed.